Section 19 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 14 The Accession of Edward IV. While the Second Battle of St. Albans was being fought, Edward of March, Duke of York, was coming from Gloucestershire with all the forces he could collect. He was too late to assist Warwick in the disastrous battle, but he joined the vanquished Earl in Oxfordshire, probably at Chipping Norton, where the road over the Cotswolds from Gloucestershire begins to descend into the valley of the Thames. Edward had with him many gentlemen from the march and over 8,000 men, but he had little money. The bulk of his men followed him at their own charges. Warwick, on the other hand, although he could not have brought either men or money, could assure Edward of the popularity of the Yorkist cause in London, and of the plentifulness of supplies there. The Queen's forces were still about St. Albans, making themselves unpopular, by reason of the depredations which the northern men made upon the townsmen. Edward resolved to advance, while London was still open to him. On February 26th, Nine days after the Battle of St. Albans, he entered the city. The Queen's forces retired northwards, although they might have stood in his way and risked all upon a battle. If Edward had been vanquished outside London, and the Yorkist cause had suffered a third defeat in succession, it is likely he would never have been king. As it was, he came to London unopposed. Then all the city were fain and thanked God and said, Let us walk in a new vineyard, and let us make us a gay garden in the month of March, with this fair white rose and herb, the Earl of March. Edward stayed for the next week in Baynard's castle, which belonged to his family. Meanwhile, conversations were being held between the magnates of the Yorkist party and the chief citizens of London. The logic of events was steadily leading everyone to the final step, when the Yorkist prince should not merely be declared heir to the throne, but actually king. The victory of the queen at St. Albans, the promptly ensuing executions of the captured leaders, the spoiling of St. Albans by the conquering army, had shown all who stood by Edward that there was no possibility of making terms with the queen. The Yorkists were now not merely enemies of the crown, in fact, but in law, too, for King Henry was willingly with the queen, and all who opposed her in him were traitors. So there was no way left by which to legalize the Yorkist position but to repudiate the whole Lancastrian system and declare a new state, to set up a new king, and to look to him as the fountain of all right and justice. On the Sunday after Edward's arrival, a great assembly of citizens and soldiers, between three and four thousand in all, was held in the open space beyond Clerkenwell. As they all stood marshalled in due order, the Chancellor of England, George Neville, Bishop of Exeter, proclaimed the title and right of Edward to the crowns of England and France. William of Worcester was present at this meeting, and after hearing the proclamation, went back to the city with the people. On Wednesday, March 3, 1461, the magnates held a council at Baynard's Castle. There were present the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Birchier, the Bishop of Salisbury, Dr. Beecham, the Bishop of Exeter, Dr. Neville, 
John, Duke of Norfolk, Richard, Earl of Warwick, Lord Fitzwalter, Lord Ferrers, Sir William Herbert, and a number of lesser-known men. They resolved to support Edward, Duke of York, as king from that time. Next day, March 4th, Edward rode to Westminster and took possession of the crown and scepter of Edward the Confessor. His formal coronation did not take place for three months, June 28, 1461. His title was not declared in Parliament for another four months, November 4th, but his reign is dated in all legal instruments from Thursday, March 4th, 1461, when he rode to Westminster and entered into the exercise of the royal estate, dignity, preeminence, and powers of the same crown. There was still a powerful Lancastrian army in the field. Edward, who is described at this time as being tall of stature, of vigorous age and well fitted to endure the conflict of battle, wasted no time in delay. On March 13th, he set out for Yorkshire on a campaign which chroniclers definitely described as one of south against north. For a moment, it seemed as if England was divided into two kingdoms, south of the Trent being under the new king, while the old king still had the north. The forces on either side were undoubtedly large, the most moderate estimate among the chroniclers being 20,000 men. Yet even this comparatively low estimate is probably exaggerated. Nevertheless, the scale on which affairs were transacted was sufficiently large to make the results of the campaign not merely important, but decisive. The Lancastrian army had retired after the campaign of St. Albans into the north. Edward followed by way of East Anglia, gathering as he went along forces from the eastern counties. By the 28th, his advance guard under Lord Fitzwalter had got into touch with the enemy at Ferry Bridge on the River Eyre. Edward, with the main body, was at Pontefract. The Lancastrian army had no doubt been somewhat disorganized by its very successes in the campaign of St. Albans. The plundering, in which the northern men indulged across the Trent when they advanced south and when they retired, must have been bad for discipline. Nevertheless, the Queen's forces were sufficiently formidable, including as they did practically all the great Lancastrian lords with their retainers, as well as skillful captains of lesser degree like Sir Andrew Trollope. The river air was broad and deep enough to make the passage of any great force impossible if reasonable precautions were taken by the defenders. Operations began on March 28th, the eve of Palm Sunday. The Earl of Warwick and Lord Fitzwalter, with the Yorkist advanced guard, attempted to force their way over the ferry bridge, which was held by a Lancastrian force under Lord Clifford. The attack was unsuccessful, and Lord Fitzwalter lost his life, and Warwick received an arrow wound in the leg. The bridge was well held, but fresh forces came up from the Yorkist main body at Pontefract, and at last, after six hours hard fighting, the bridge was taken. It is said that the main attacks had been helped by a small party which under Lord Falkenberg crossed the air at Castleford three miles up the river and executed a turning movement against the defenders of the bridge. Among the slain was Lord Clifford, who had taken off his gorget in order to fight more freely and thus left his neck exposed 
to the fatal arrow which ended his life. That night, the whole Yorkist army passed over the bridge and waited for the morning amid frost and snow. On the next day, March 29th, which was Palm Sunday, was fought the great battle now generally known as Towton, a township in the parish of Saxton, three miles from Tadcaster. Other names given to the battle were Ferrybridge and Sherburne. The Lancastrian host occupied a fair plain between Towton and Saxton. On the west side of the battlefield was the Saxton-Towton Road. On the east side was the great Ferrybridge tadcaster Road. In front, between the Lancastrian and Yorkist armies, was a small valley having the picturesque old English name of Dintingdale. Thus the Lancastrians had a good position, in front the valley, their left on the Tadcaster Road, their right on the Towton Road or Lane. Thus advance or retreat would be facilitated. The only weak point in case of retreat was that the stream cock, running in a northeasterly direction to join the wharf, cut across the two roads and passed between Tadcaster and the Lancastrian army. The battle is said to have begun at nine o'clock in the morning. On the Yorkist side, the army was in the customary three divisions. Lord Falkenberg led the Vaward with a strong body of archers. Edward himself, with the Earl of Warwick, was with the main body. Sir John Wenlock and Sir John Denham were with the rearward. Before the attack began, a proclamation was made through the army that no prisoners should be taken. The practice of giving no quarter was by this time firmly established. A similar understanding prevailed on the Lancastrian side. Here the Vaward, occupying the centre of Henry's line of battle, was under the Earl of Northumberland and Sir Andrew Trollope. Henry, with the Duke of Somerset, was probably in the right wing. The traditional account of the battle is that Lord Falkenberg began the advance with the Vaward while the sleet was falling and being blown by the wind toward the Lancastrian front. He ordered the archers, when they came near or just within range of the enemy, to let go one flight of arrows and then stand still. The Lancastrian center, feeling this volley and misjudging the distance owing to the sleet, thought the Yorkists were close enough. So they immediately began shooting off their arrows rapidly toward Falkenberg's men. But the arrows, owing to the contrary wind, fell short, out of range, and Lord Falkenberg ordered his men to gather them up. Then, when the Lancastrian centre seemed to have exhausted their sheaves, he ordered the advance to be renewed, and his archers to discharge within range not only their own arrows, but also those they had gathered from the Lancastrian volleys. When their arrows in turn were exhausted, they beset their opponents with various sorts of axes, hatchets, daggers, and mallets or maces. The whole Yorkist army came into the battle, and Edward distinguished himself by his firmness and decision. It required ten hours of hard fighting to turn the obstinate and desperately resisting Lancastrians into flight, but in the end they broke, and attempted to escape toward Tadcaster Bridge. But all could not gain that point or cross it at once. Many must have been killed in the pursuit, 
drowned in the cock, which though narrow was deep, or in the greater river wharf. Rumors said the slaughter was so great that at one point the cock became fordable by reason of the corpses piled up in it, so that some fugitives escaped over this grisly causeway. All the water which came down from Towton was colored red with blood. The magnates, of course, suffered severely. The Earl of Northumberland, Lords Neville, Wells, and Molly, the stout knight, Sir Andrew Trollope, died fighting. Forty-two more knights, in spite of the proclamation of no quarter, were taken prisoners, but they were all killed soon afterwards. The young Earl of Devonshire was also made prisoner and likewise suffered death. On the Yorkist side, the losses must have been heavy too, but none of the leaders were killed. This was perhaps the most decisive battle of the war, because it was a signal defeat and scattering of the Lancastrian forces in the north where their strength was greatest. It completely reversed the tide of success which had begun not far off for the Lancastrians at Wakefield and spent itself further south at St. Albans. Henry, the Queen, the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter were fortunate to escape with their lives. There were still a few northern castles to receive them, but their final destruction or expulsion from England was almost inevitable. Immediately after the battle, Edward went to York, and entering without opposition into that great capital of the north, received the oath of fidelity from the citizens. He took down his father's head, which, since the fatal day of Wakefield, had been stuck up on the wall of the city. There were plenty of noble Lancastrian heads to take its place. Edward remained at York for three weeks celebrating Easter, which fell this year on April 19th, with great splendor. From York he went further north, through the county of Durham into Northumberland. At the beginning of May he was at Newcastle, where he beheaded the Earl of Wiltshire. Most of the northern castles seemed to have capitulated. Nevertheless, the north was by no means all secured to Edward when he turned south again, and continued his progress by a roundabout route taking in Lancashire and Cheshire, and then through Coventry to London. By June 14th, he was in London, residing at Lambeth, preparing for his formal coronation, which took place on June 28, 1461. The Earl of Warwick and Lord Falkenberg had to stay with forces in the north to deal with what was left of the Lancastrian party there. It took three more years to secure Northumberland completely for the Yorkist cause. On June 28th, Edward set out, as the custom was, from the Tower of London to be crowned at Westminster. The coronation was performed with all the due and ancient ceremony, and the occasion was marked by the creation of a number of new peers, who had served the House of York. Edward's brother George was made Duke of Clarence. Richard was made Duke of Gloucester. Two new titles went to the Birchier family. Lord Birchier became Earl of Essex. Sir Humphrey Birchier became Lord Cromwell. The faithful Lord Falkenberg was given the Earldom of Kent, being thus made equal to his nephew, the Earl of Warwick, whose rank was not raised. The titles given to these and to others were the reward of good service. Edward had now shown that he was king indeed. Since March 4th, he had used his right and title to the realm of England. On June 28th, he had been regularly crowned. 
He had met his subjects on the field of battle at Towton. He was now to meet the nation as represented, though imperfectly, in Parliament. The new king had intended that a session should take place in July, but the Scots had taken advantage of the civil war to besiege Carlisle, and so it was thought best to postpone the session till quieter times. The siege was soon raised by forces under Lord Montague, brother of Warwick, but still there was no word of the writs for the Parliament. Shortly before the coronation it became known that Parliament would be summoned to meet after Michaelmas. Meanwhile it was expected that the king would have to go to the north parts again to resist the Scots and to enforce the peace. However, the danger in the north turned out to be less than was expected, so Edward did not go there, but left matters to his efficient deputy, the Earl of Warwick. The king himself turned to other parts of his new-won realm, and occupied most of the interval between the coronation and the meeting of Parliament in making a royal progress of an extended nature. He first went through the southeastern counties, and then into the Welsh march, and then turned home again through the Midlands. This journey appears in the domestic correspondence of the time because John Paston's eldest son was in the king's retinue. News came to the father that the young man was gaining great commendation among the king's gentlemen and stood well in conceit, but that he was greatly straitened for lack of money as the allowance which his father gave him was insufficient to enable him, as he put it, to spend reasonably among the splendid gentlemen of the court. Edward's progress, the second of his reign, the first was in the north parts after Towton, occupied the greater part of the months of August and September. After going through Kent and Sussex, he proceeded into the west to Bristol. From there he went through the Welsh march by Gloucester and Hereford to Ludlow. About September 27th or 28th, he turned back through the Midlands and reached London probably on October 7th or 8th. The progress had been eminently successful. Wherever necessary along the route, the king, as the source of all justice, held a judicial session and pronounced judgment upon those who were accused of breaking the king's peace and resisting the royal authority. No doubt the king's presence was greatly needed in the country, for even nearer London the peace was often broken. Beware how ye ride or go, wrote Margaret Paston to her husband John on July 9th, for naughty or ill-disposed fellowships, I am put in fear daily for mine own abiding here. This refers to life in Norfolk. On the Welsh march, in the months after Towton, there were many castles held by Henry VI. A Lancastrian party was still kept together by his half-brother, Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke. But the king's progress resulted in the surrender of all the castles except one, both of South and of North Wales. Jasper Tudor had to hide in the mountains. The royal progress was an ancient and honorable part of a king's business. It served many purposes, for it enabled the king to get at the grievances of his subjects and to deal out justice as he went along. It was an opportunity for him to show himself to his people and to maintain the popularity of the crown. Lastly, it was a measure of economy, for it meant that the king and his retinue lived largely at free quarters, collecting royal dues and receiving hospitality from noblemen and towns. Although in the time of Henry II and John, 
the royal progress had often proved merely burdensome to the suitors who had to seek for justice by following the court from place to place, and to the people whose carts and horses were seized for the king's use, yet properly and moderately conducted, the royal progress was a very useful practice for the king and a right and effective way of enforcing the peace. For this purpose, while their authority was still being questioned, the progress was used with success both by Edward IV and Richard III. When Parliament met on November 4, 1461, it was completely Yorkist in sympathy. The leading men of the clerical estate, such as Thomas Birchier, Archbishop of Canterbury, and the disinterested William Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester, were loyal to Edward and would ensure the support of most of the other bishops. The temporal peers in Parliament were Yorkists too. No Lancastrians were summoned. Of the House of Commons it may be said that the burghers as a rule were favourable to the Yorkist party as being the stronger on land and sea, and therefore good for trade and for quiet living, and the knights elected in the court of the shire were chosen as it seems under the scrutiny of the king's sheriff and the neighbouring magnates who acknowledged Edward IV. The sheriff's interference was not always liked, but it was difficult not to accept it. The Parliament met on November 4th and was opened by the Chancellor, Dr. Neville, Bishop of Exeter, with a sermon on the text, Amend Your Ways and Your Doings, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3. The number of temporal peers summoned was 44, which was about the average attendance in the upper house during the 15th century. On November 12th, the Speaker, Sir James Strangeways, a knight for Yorkshire, presented a petition of the Commons, that the claim of Edward's family to the crown should be embodied in an act of Parliament. The act was passed, but this does not mean that the Yorkists held by a parliamentary title. Edward's reign began before the Parliament. The act of Parliament distinctly recognizes it as having begun on the fourth day of the month of March last past. The period of Lancastrian rule was regarded as an interlude of usurpation. In the act, Henry VI, V, and IV are alluded to merely as the late called King Henry VI, son of Henry, son of the said Henry, late Earl of Derby, son to John of Gaunt. Nevertheless, with certain exceptions, all judicial acts, charters, patents of the late reigns were declared to hold good and to be valid in law. Without some such declaration, no one in the land would have been safe and anarchy would have ensued. In fact, the government of the realm and the relations of society went on much as before. The chief officers of the crown were already Yorkist before Edward came to the throne, and so no change of ministry was necessary. But a comprehensive bill of attainder was passed against the friends of Henry VI. The list of persons attainted began with the names of Henry himself, Margaret, and Prince Edward. It included fourteen great Lancastrian lords, some of whom were still living like the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter, while others were already dead. But living or dead, they were all attainted in blood. Their estates were thus forfeited to the crown. Besides the nobles, there was included a large number of people of lower rank down to yeomen. In all, there were a hundred and fifty-three. The number seems large, but it might easily have been larger. 
Moreover, most of the attainted people were for the moment out of reach, in hiding or in exile, and their submission in the future might gain their pardon. Parliament was prorogued on December 21st with a speech delivered by Edward in person, in which he promised to devote himself to the service of the nation. He was at this time only nineteen years and eight months old. It must be admitted that he had shown great capacity for so young a man. End of section 19